One of the great things that I remember growing up is the many teachers that God gave me. I grew up in Indiana till I was about nine and went to a school in Indiana and then a school in Illinois just for a year where my dad taught. He taught in both schools. And uh, then we moved to Minnesota. Now that's back to my roots. My dad's from Minnesota. He grew up about an hour east or hour west of Duluth. And my mom is from North Dakota. So we were moving closer to our roots when we moved back to Minneapolis. And And so Minnesota is what I remember much about my teachers. But my teachers began all the way back in Indiana. My first teacher's my first teacher's name was Mrs. Parkhurst, and she was the kindergarten teacher. And uh, then my second teacher was Mrs. Lively, and her, her name matches her personality. In fact, just last year, I was able to see her again for the first time since I was in kindergarten. She lives out in the Sacramento, California area, and she is, uh, some of you will relate to this. Somebody mentioned this to me last night, that they were half Irish and half Italian. She's Irish-Italian, so you can imagine the personality that she has. And uh, she was just a, just a lively, fun lady to be around. My dad worked with uh, her husband, and uh, so we have a lot of connections that way. My third teacher, Mrs. Miss, Mrs. Summers, was a rather robust lady, and uh, she, you always knew when you got a hug from Mrs. Summers. I mean, she'd just squeeze everything that was in you out of you and some that wasn't. And, but you know, she was a happy Christian, and I remember that about her. Well, I remember my teachers, and I'm so thankful for them. When I was nine, as I mentioned, we moved to Minnesota, and, uh, and we had different teachers. My, my sixth grade teacher, Mr. Engens, was, he was a great guy. He had a personality that was just really laid back. It, I would refer to him now as a flatliner, but uh, he was really laid back, and he, he, he would watch us guys out on the playground uh, play and sometimes fight, and he would just let us fight it out. Which I really look back, I kind of respect that, you know. And he'd just watch us fight it out for a while. And then he'd saunter over across the street and around the fence. And he was a big man. He'd grab one by the nap of his neck and the other by the nap of his neck and pull us apart and uh, try to make some kind of reconciliation before the end of the day. But I remember oh, so many good teachers that God gave me. When I moved into 7th and 7th through 12th grade, I had some really good teachers. Mr. Drexler was my high school math teacher. And uh, he had a big, deep bass voice. And whenever he prayed, you just felt like you were in the presence of the Lord because you could just sense that Mr. Drexler knew and loved God. And he was so patient. I mean, you have to be to deal with seventh and eighth grade kids of any sort, but uh, he was the math teacher. And if you had a question, he would go back and he'd work through that question and work through that problem. And I just, I just marvel even to this day at the patience of Mr. Drexler. Uh, Mr. Hazard was quite a teacher. Now he was from the Northeast, Massachusetts, if I remember. And he always would talk about washing the car and, and car, and he'd talk about a quarter and, and he never lost. It's, it's an amazing thing. He never lost his Massachusetts accent ever which is amazing because the Minnesota accent is very distinct and it's very, uh, it's very powerful. And so uh, he, he never lost, he never gave it up. He always had that, and that, that way about him. And Mr. Hazard, if you were to ask any of my classmates, they would tell you Mr. Hazard was one of their favorite teachers because he just had a wisdom about him. He had a way about listening. He knew how to listen and he was a good listener. And when he gave some advice, you knew it was worth taking and worth heeding. And I just appreciate that about Mr. Hazard. One of the teachers I appreciate the most was my art teacher. Her name was Mrs. Burns. Mrs. Burns was a short lady about this tall. 
She had a head of dark hair, and uh, she would a lot of times stand with her hands on the desk, and she'd be stooped over when you came in. But she always had a smile. And uh, she had a lot of makeup. I remember that distinctly. And now, I don't even know what this means, but I know for a fact this is the case. It wasn't always on straight. Now, I don't, again, I don't even know what that means. But Mrs. Mrs. Burns, she, she just was quite an amazing lady. She taught us about watercolor and oil and acrylic. She taught us about sculpture and, and pen and, and, and pencil drawings. And, and she would always let anybody that wanted to that, to, that felt like God had called them to preach, she'd let them give a devotion at the beginning of class. Well, that was me because I knew that God had called me to preach. And I love that today about Mrs. Burns. She would always have us quote Joshua 1.8.9 at the beginning of class. So, all right, class together, let's say it. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. You know what I remember most about Mrs. Burns? It wasn't what she taught in art. It was what she taught with her life. Because the reason she would be leaning on her desk and stooped over was because she was in constant pain. She had MS, but she seldom, if ever, let on. Most of the time, she was smiling, and I'll never forget that. She's in heaven now with a perfect body, but I'm sure you could delineate some of your teachers, good and bad and indifferent, but I'm thankful for the good teachers that God gave me. Tonight, I want us to go into the Word of God, and I want us to sit at the feet of a teacher that you may not think was even a teacher, but he teaches some of the most powerful lessons in all the Bible. For a few moments tonight, I want to preach to you from the story of one of Jacob's sons. Look, please, at Genesis chapter 29, will you? And notice what the Bible says in verse 15. It says, And Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught or for nothing? Tell me what shall thy wages be? And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. Now, that's romantic right there. If, if, if I were you, I'd just underline that whole verse. That's pretty powerful. He served seven years, but they seemed to him but a few days. Verse 21, And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him, and he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah, his maid, for an handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. He said, wait, what just happened? Well, can you imagine if you feel that way, how Jacob felt? (laughs) Jacob had for his whole life, he had conned people out of what they had because it was something he wanted. And now he's getting kickback and he's getting a little pushback and a little sowing from the law of sowing and reaping. He's getting a little reaping. And so when he went, when he took his bride into the marriage suite at night, 
He thought he had Rachel. When he woke up in the morning, he discovered he had Leah. You say, wait a second, how is that possible? Well, first of all, they wore a veil over their whole face and you couldn't see. Secondly, uh, they didn't have all the blessings of lights like you and I have. And if it was a, if it was a cloudy night, well, that just made it even worse. And so, so when he woke up in the morning, I'm going to tell you, he, he was shocked. Look at how the Bible words things. You just can't improve it on the wording of the Bible. It says in verse Verse number, uh, verse number 25, and it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this that thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? And Laban said, it must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. Now listen to me carefully. Jacob should have said, okay, I don't understand this. I I don't like this. I'm not for this, but I'm just going to accept this. But he didn't say that. He forced his hand and now he's going to marry Rachel. He's married to sisters, both of which are his wives. Verse number 28, Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. And he gave him Rachel, his daughter, to wife also. And Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Bilhah, his handmaid, to be her maid. And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived, she bears a son, verse 32, his name is Reuben. Verse 33, she conceived again, bears a son, his name is Simeon. Verse 34, she conceives again, bears a son, his name is Levi. Verse 35, and she conceived again and bare a son, and she said, now will I praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah and left bearing. Right away. God gives four sons to Leah, shuts up Rachel's womb and opens up Leah's womb. So Leah bears four children and the fourth son, Judah, is our subject. Tonight, for a few moments, I want to preach to you on the subject. Thank you, Judah, for the lessons you teach me. Thank you, Judah, for the lessons you teach me. You say, what in the world could we possibly learn from Judah? I'm sure you're asking that if you know anything about his life. But all the powerful lessons that come from Judah's life. First of all, I want you to notice lesson number one that we learn from Judah is, watch it now, God loves me and works with me in spite of me. God loves me and works with me in spite of me. God doesn't love me because of me. He just loves me. He doesn't love me because I've gotten all cleaned up. He doesn't love me because I've figured it all out. He doesn't love me because I keep a list of rules. He doesn't love me because I meet his qualifications. No, no. He loves me before I met anybody's qualifications. In fact, he loved me when I had violated all of his qualifications. And he loves you just the same. Now, watch. At this juncture, Jacob has two wives... And four sons. Notice what the Bible says in verse 1. And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in God's stead? Who hath withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? And she said, Behold, my maid Bilhah, go in unto her, and she shall bear, uh, she shall bear upon my knees, that, that I may also have children by her. And she gave him Bilhah, her handmaid to wife, and Jacob went in unto her. And Bilhah conceived and bare Jacob a son. She calls his name Dan, verse number six. 
Rachel calls his name Dan. Verse 7, Bilhah conceives again, bears Jacob a second son. Rachel calls his name Naphtali. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Now you have two wives for Jacob. By the way, it was wrong for Jacob to listen to and follow the advice of his wife in this. He should have led her instead of following her, but he followed her because her advice was wrong. It was against, it was against uh, the word of God and against, uh, against everything that he knew that was right. And so, but he followed her just like Adam did, just like Abraham, his grandfather did, and now regrets it. And scripture says in verse number nine, when Leah saw that she had left bearing and she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her Jacob to wife. And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a son. And Leah said, a troop cometh. And she called his name Gad. Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a second son. Leah said, uh, his name is Asher. (laughs) Now, I want you to think with me about this. If this family lived in this town, they would be the talk of the town. If this family came to visit this revival meeting tonight, just think of that. Folks would say, oh, what are they doing here? Some of you would probably grab your kids and scoot over a little bit. Uh, this, this makes some bus kids families or broken home families look like a Sunday school family. A man with two wives and now two mistresses and they all live together. <laughs> Rachel says, hey, I can't have kids, but here's Bilhah, my maid. Jacob says, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> And Leah, after a couple kids, says, oh, no, you don't. You're not getting out ahead of me. So here's my maid, Zilpah. Oh, that's a good idea. Jacob just went right along with it. And so I've got one daddy, but that's my mommy. No, no, that's my mommy. No, no, that she's my mommy. Well, she's kind of my, my dad's wife. And can you imagine those kids at Christmas time? Can you imagine that family tree? I, I would like for somebody to draw me that family tree tonight after the service. It would, it would help my theology. Can you imagine this? Now watch me now. The fact is, is that there are families similar to this and devastated by sin and destroyed and wrecked and ruined and we shouldn't treat them any different than our Lord does. He loves them and works with them in spite of them. Right? God loves me and works with me in spite of me. We love him because he first loved us. He initiated this whole thing. He came to us. He moved towards us. We didn't deserve his love. We didn't earn his love. We didn't attain or aspire to his love. We were covered up in our own sin. And if it wasn't in this generation, it was in last generation. And if it wasn't in that generation, it was in two or three generations ago when somehow God's grace came and interrupted our mess. I'm afraid for us sometimes. Afraid that sometimes we get so insulated and so isolated in our Christianity that we forget there's a world not very far from us whose lives are wrecked and ruined and marred and destroyed by sin. And we forget that God loves them just like he at one time loved us and still does. God doesn't love us because now we've figured it out because we're still stumbling our way through life. We're still sometimes muddling through somehow. We're still messing up. We're still, we're still not getting it right. And yet God still loves us. He doesn't discard us. He doesn't set us aside. He still loves us and he still comes for us. Can you think God came for Jacob? 
God loves Jacob, even though he's botched this family tree up. He is the one through whom his promise is going to be fulfilled to Abraham and to Isaac. He is the one through whom the promised seed is going to come through Jacob. God loves me and works with me in spite of me. But now I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 37, would you? Over a few chapters, Genesis 37. It says, And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob, being seven, Joseph being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhan, with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors. Now, his, Joseph has been born since then. Joseph is the, the firstborn son of Rachel. God eventually opened Rachel's womb. And the scripture tells us that, that Rachel, uh, that, that Jacob loves Joseph more than all the rest of his sons or, or daughter Dina. Mm, this is a bad mistake of parenting. And it's certainly not a wise thing if you do love one child more than the other to show that favoritism and that love towards all the rest, but towards the one to the exclusion of the other. But that's what he did. And he made him a coat of many colors, verse 3. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. All right. Now, it starts through the portal of hatred. It starts through the portal of incivility or uncivility. It starts there, but it is going to open up Pandora's box, a plethora of trouble. Notice, please, verse number five, and Joseph dreamed a dream. He tells it to his brothers in verses five and six and says, I was out, my sheaf of wheat was there, and your sheaves of wheat were there. They all bowed down to my sheaf of wheat. Look at his brother's response, verse eight, and his brethren said to him, shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet more, for, yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Now listen carefully. I've heard some people try to make this a prideful thing of Joseph. The Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say that here or anywhere else. I think he was just eating a bowl of Lucky Charms saying, Hey guys, I had a crazy dream last night. And I don't even know what it means. He had to be eating a bowl of Lucky Charms. Don't you agree? That, that's probably what it means in the Hebrew. But anyway, he, he was just sitting there talking and, and telling his dreams. And they got so indignant. And they became so angry. It was bad enough that their father, Israel, Jacob, had given him a coat of many colors and excluded them. But now he's giving these cockeyed dreams that say somehow he's reigning over us. The next week or so, month, he has another dream. In this dream, his star is in the heavens and the moon and the sun are there and, and, and his brother's stars are there. They all bow down. Verse number 11, it says in verse 10 that his father uh, spoke, he told it to his father and to his brethren and his father rebuked him and said unto him, what is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? You know, that would be a good question to, to frame. Because the answer is actually yes. These were dreams from heaven. They were to foretell the future. In verse 11, and his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. Well, his brothers, they couldn't even say a kind word to him. And then the Bible says that his father sends him down to see how his brothers are doing. And in verse 18, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. 
Wait, time out. Just about 15 verses earlier, they just hated him and they were, they were uncivil in their response to him. Now, watch me, young people, listen to me. You think that you got a hold of sin? Pretty soon, and sooner than you think, sin has a hold of you. You think you can handle a little pet sin of envy or incivility or unkindness or bitterness or hatred? Pretty soon it has you. You think you have the tiger by the tail? It's the other way around. Now they're ready to kill him. They conspired against him to slay him. Verse number 19, and they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him. And we shall see what will become of his dreams. Now, I personally believe it was Judah that came up with the idea. In verse number 21, it says, And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands. And said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness. And, and lay no hand upon him that, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. At least Reuben had a little sense of responsibility. At least Reuben felt the pressure of duty weighing upon his shoulders. And he said, hey, I better rescue him out of all of this. Do you know the second lesson that we learn from Judah's life? First, we learn that God loves me and works with me in spite of me. Second, we learn sin is exceedingly sinful. Sin is exceedingly sinful. And God's not okay with your sin. And he's not okay with my sin. And he's not okay with the sin in this county. And he's not okay with the sin in this state, known or unknown, public or private. He's not okay with sin. God has a controversy with sin. Look at what it says in verse 22 or verse 23. It says, and it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. You see, you're envious against that person because they seem to have more favor. You're envious against that person because they seem to always have God's blessing. You're envious against that person because they seem to have a nicer car or a nicer house or more money or nicer clothes or whatever. You know, it's not about the clothes of the car or the house. It's about your dark and dirty heart that needs to confess the sin of envy. It's something much bigger than something surface. It never is what appears to be. It's always something deeper. And they're going after the coat. They think it's the coat. It has nothing to do with the coat. It has something to do with their vile, dirty hearts that won't get right with God. You say, why, if I could just get rid of this, if I could just be better here, if I could just have more money here, if I could just be further along than that person, all my problems would be solved. No, they wouldn't. Because you, the one that you see in the mirror, are your number one problem. And watch here now. As they come along, they strip him out of his coat, his coat of many colors, and they they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was emptied. There was no water in it. Already through that portal of hatred and envy and incivility, they've gone down the road of bitterness and unforgiveness and the road of conspiracy and violence. And if that weren't bad enough, look at what it says in the next verse, verse 25. And they sat down to eat bread. That phrase stands out to me like a neon sign. I used to preach, Brother Aaron, that when I was first in evangelism, apathy was like a surface sin or it was a symptom sin. I don't believe that anymore. I believe when you get to the point of apathy, you're several layers. They sat down to eat bread? 
They who just stripped his coat off, they who just threw their own flesh and blood in a pit, they who were conspiring moments earlier to kill him, they sat down to eat bread. They who were hating their brother, just in verse 3, and envying their brother and, and filled with bitterness against their brother and unforgiveness, they, oh, I wonder what kind of bread they ate. I wonder how they liked their sandwich on sourdough, wheat, or rye. I wonder if it was a Reuben sandwich. I wonder what kind of cheese they chose. Maybe American, maybe provolone. I wonder if they wanted some gray poupon with their sandwich. I hope you enjoy it. And it's astounding to me, Pastor, astounding to me how Christians who know the difference between right and wrong can actually go to sleep at night when they know there are relationships broken in their own life. It's astounding to me how Christians who know full well that they have a conscience that is violated and there's something that they've done that is wrong or something that they're doing that is wrong or some way that they're living that is wrong and they can actually go to sleep at night. It's amazing to me. The apathy. People ask me all the time, what do you see across the country? And for the last 27 years, I've seen apathy, indifference. Our country is going straight to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. yeah. As long as it doesn't affect me. As long as it's not on my doorstep. As long as it's somewhere over in Ukraine or China or somewhere else. As long as it's not in my life. Oh, People all around us slipping into a Christless hell. In the last minute, 230 people died. Many of them stepped into a Christless eternity. And, and no big deal. We can go week and week and week out without tears, without a burden, without prayer. The apathy is, it reeks of apathy. And the Bible says, Then they lifted up their eyes, verse number 25, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh going to carry it down to Egypt. Watch the next three words. And Judah said, now any preacher here should do a study on that phrase. It's very interesting. It says, and Judah said unto his brethren, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for, for he is our, our brother and our flesh. And his brethren were content. Oh, you know, he says this. Um, excuse me, I want to wipe the gray poupon from off the side of my face. Uh, you know, what are we going to get out of this? We, we, we kill him. We're not going to get anything. But if we sell him, we'll at least make a buck. And after all, we much better is our option to sell him than to kill him, for he is our brother. <laughs> what hypocrisy, what fraud, what phoniness, all dressed up like it's virtue. You know what he's teaching us? That sin is exceedingly sinful. Sir, your sin is exceedingly sinful whether anybody knows about it or not. My sin is exceedingly sinful whether anybody sees it or not. Sin is exceedingly sinful. And now all of a sudden it has descended into the abyss of slavery. Mm -hmm. Verse 28, Then there passed by Midianites merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. 
I wonder what Joseph, I wonder what Judah and his brethren did when they heard the cries of Joseph. No, 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 I'm their brother. No, no, you can't do this to me. Judah, Judah, Naphtali, Zebulon, Asher, Gad, Dan, guys. I wonder maybe they just put their AirPods in and just turned the volume way up. Maybe they didn't look at him face to face. They probably couldn't. Maybe they turned their head away. Wow. Reuben comes back. He's brokenhearted. They've got to figure out a way, and I believe they kept it from Reuben for years. They've got to figure out a way that they can communicate this to their dad. So they kill a goat, and they put the coat of many colors in the blood, and they send it ahead by some servants, and, and they say this to the servants. They say, ask Jacob to see whether this is, this is Joseph's coat or no. And they bring this bloody coat to Joseph, or to Jacob, and Jacob lifts up his voice and weeps and says, indeed, this is my son's coat. Surely an evil beast hath devoured him. Without doubt, he has written pieces. None of which was true, but that was the only conclusion he could come to. And that was the conclusion they wanted him to come to because now not only have they sinned by selling their brother into slavery, but they've covered it up by deception. And then what did they do at the end of the chapter? They come and weep and wail and try to pretend like they're really comforting their father. All the while, under their breath, they're saying, well, we're sure glad we got rid of that guy. Now look right this way and listen to what I'm about to say. If you think that the sin of Genesis 37 is awful, you ain't seen nothing yet. Look at Genesis 38. In Genesis 38, the Bible says it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went in unto her, and she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bare a son, and she called his name Onan, and she yet conceived again and bare a son, and called his name Shelah. Well, the Bible says in verse number uh, 6 that he took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Amar, and Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. Time out! Time out! Judah's not so squeaky clean himself. So if God killed his son Ur because he was wicked, how much more wicked was he than his father? Well, it was the responsibility of the next son to bring up seed to the, the, their brother, but, but Onan wouldn't do it, so God killed Onan. So now, several years have passed, several decades have passed, and Judah lost, has lost two of his own sons. You always reap what you sow and you always reap more than you sow. So what he does to his daughter-in-law is he says, I want you to stay with me. Verse number 11. Then said Judah, there's that phrase again, to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow at thy father's house till Shelah, my son, be grown. For he said, lest peradventure he die also as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. And in process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted, and went up unto his sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. 
And she put her widow's garments off from her and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath, for she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given unto him to wife. So her opportunities to be a mother were fast, fast fading. Verse, uh, verse number 15, when Judah saw her, he thought her to be an harlot because she had covered her face. And she turned unto her, he turned unto her, by the way, and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, Well, I will send thee a, a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send him? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, uh, uh, Thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff and that is in thine hand. And he gave it her and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. And she arose and went away and laid by her veil from her and put her on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. He said, Preacher, am I reading this rightly? Yes, you're reading it rightly. God killed his first son, Ur, killed his second son, Onan. He tucked away his daughter-in-law and said, when Sheila's grown, then maybe, maybe you can m- marry him. But, but he had no intention really of fulfilling that promise. He, his wife dies and he goes off on a little getaway and Tamar finds out about it and goes and plays the harlot. He comes into her and conceives, she conceives a son by her father-in-law. You say, this is messed up. Yes, you know what? This proves the Bible is God's book because man would not have written it. Someone said man would not have written it if he could have and could not have written it if he would have. It tells the plain, open, unabashed, naked truth about things. You say, well, I didn't know this was in the Bible. Well, yes, here it is. And now he sends a kid by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he found her not, verse 20, verse 21. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, Let her take it to her, lest we be shamed. Behold, I sent this kid, and thou hast not found her. Well, you know, we wouldn't want the whole evening to be a slam on Judah session. At least we know he wants to pay his bills. He said, Preacher, this is a shameful chapter. Yes, sometimes I've read chapter 38 and wondered why it's in the Bible. But you're going to find out in just a moment. Verse number 24, and it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth, and let her be burnt. Oh, I see how it is. Uh Uh-huh. Rules for thee, but not rules for me. Judah must have been a Democrat. I see how it is. I see how this game is played. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, I loathe the mindset that says that the women have to behave, but the men can play like barnyard animals. Morality affects both genders. But not in Judah's case. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man whose these are, am I with child? And she said, discern, I pray thee, whose are these? The signet and bracelets and staff. Are you listening to me? 
Judah is our teacher. He teaches us, number one, that God loves me and works with me in spite of me. Number two, he teaches us that sin is exceedingly sinful. And if there is a Christian here tonight tolerating, okaying, uh, including, indulging in some kind of sin, you need to be the first one to get right with God and forget about everyone else. You need to say, God, I don't care about what people think. I don't care what people know. I don't care what is uncovered. I just want to have a clean heart and I want to be right with you. That's the heart of someone that's going to be revived. Judah is in a, a, up to his eyeballs in a mess of his own making. But you know, there's a third lesson of four that he teaches us. I will come back to verse number 20. Six in a moment, but notice please verse 27. And it came to pass in the time of her travail that behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed that the one put out his hand and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread saying this came out first and it came to pass as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out and she said, how hast thou broken forth this breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Perez. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand and his name was called Zerah. You know the third lesson that Jacob or that Judah teaches us? Watch this now. God's grace is greater than all my sin. God's grace is greater than than all my sin. Would you say that with me? God's grace is greater than all my sin. The first lesson he teaches me is God loves me and works with me in spite of me. The second lesson he teaches is that sin is exceedingly sinful. God's never been okay with sin. He's always been against sin. But the third lesson is God's grace is greater than all my sin. You said, preacher, you got God's grace out of the last few verses of chapter 38? Yes. Where? The scarlet thread. The scarlet thread that was wrapped around Zara's hand. You said, preacher, that's God's grace? Yes, it's a picture of God's grace. It's a picture of redemption. And you can follow it all throughout the Bible, all the way back in the book of Genesis. The very first thing that died in the Bible and in the history of the world was an animal slain by the hand of Almighty God. I was witnessing to a Hindu a few uh, years ago in 2020, as a matter of fact, right after the pandemic broke out and, and I was in a hotel. And while I was there in the hotel, there was a, there was a, a Hindu young man that was tending to his hotel. His dad's, his parents' hotel. While I was witnessing to him, I I said, well, tell me, I said, what's the Hindu solution for the sin problem? So he gave me a list of things that if you do them according to the Hindu faith, you'll be at least halfway guaranteed that maybe someday you'll make it. And And then I said, well, tell me what is a sin? What qualifies as a sin in the Hindu religion? He said, well, well, killing, especially killing an animal. I said, really? Yes. I said, did you know the very first thing that ever died in the universe was an animal? He said, I didn't know that. I said, do you know how it died? He said, no. I said, it was killed. I said, do you know who killed it? He said, no. I said, almighty God. I said, do you know why he killed it? He said, no. I said, so that sin could be solved. 
Adam and Eve had a homemade fig leaf apron to cover their nakedness. That couldn't have been sufficient, and it couldn't have been very comfortable, no matter what name brand was on it. And here God took it away, and he said, I'm not satisfied with this. There has to be the bloody death of a substitute. And he took the coats of skins, and he made for this, the, these two, his first creation, he made for them coats of skins and down at the base of the altar where the animal was slayed was red blood. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, the first two brothers, bring their sacrifices, taught by their parents how they were to bring sacrifices. And Abel obeyed. He brought a lamb. He killed the lamb. God was satisfied. Cain said, ah, I'm a farmer. I'll bring a fruit basket all wrapped up in cellophane, brings it to the Lord. And the Lord was pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but he rejected Cain's sacrifice. Why did he reject Cain's sacrifice? Well, it wasn't because it was fruit. It was because it represented the works of his own hands. Why did he accept Abel's sacrifice? Because it was a bloody sacrifice. You come into the book of Genesis chapter 22 and you'll find that God told Abraham to offer his son Isaac upon the altar, not because he was wanting human sacrifice, but he was wanting all of Abraham. And so Abraham immediately and obediently took his son up to the land to, to where he was told and he brought his son there and built an altar, laid his son upon the altar, lifted up his knife and was about to slam. And the Lord said, Abram, Abram, I know that you are going to obey me. He said, look yonder in the thicket. And there was a ram and he took that ram he brought that lamb took isaac off the altar put the ram on the altar and killed it and flowing down from that altar across the stones and down into the earth was red blood what is that that's grace you find it in Exodus chapter 11 and 12 when the children of Israel were to kill the Passover lamb, the first, a lamb of the first year, a male of the first year without blemish and they were to collect the blood in a little basin. They were to go outside as God was about to bring the final plague upon Egypt. They were to grab a plant called hyssop and dip it down in the blood and apply the blood to the lintel and to the doorpost, a picture of the cross. And when they did, that blood was dripping down red blood a picture of grace. You find it with bullocks and he goats and turtle doves all throughout the Old Testament by the hundreds of thousands and, and millions of sacrifices offered. And every time the blood flowed, it was a picture of God's grace. Then you come into the New Testament and you find John the Baptist preaching. And right in the middle of his sermon, he stops dead away and he points to a newcomer and to a guest. And he says, here he is, folks, the one I've been preaching about. Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Do you know what that is? That's grace. And Jesus' blood doesn't cover us and cover our sin. Jesus' blood takes it away. For oftentimes, priests often offer the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know that in the tabernacle of the Old Testament and the temple of the Old Testament, there was no chair? Did you know that? No chair. Do you know why? Because the priest's work was never done. But when Jesus Christ cried on the cross to tell us die, it is finished. He was not saying, I'm about to die. He was not saying, my life is finished. He was saying, my payment for sin is finished. It's complete. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. And when he ascended and sat, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because the priest's work was finally done. 
You know what that tells me? God's grace is greater than our sin. You say, well, I I get all that, but I don't know. All right, well, in your own spare time, look at Matthew chapter 1. And do you know what you'll find in Matthew chapter 1? You'll find the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, it says in the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. That is Judah that we're speaking of. Are you listening? It says, and Judas begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. And Perez begat Ezra, and Ezra begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Aram, and so forth. Do you know what that tells me? These two illegitimate sons born in an act of incest within the home of Judah, Perez makes it into the lineage of Jesus Christ. Do you know what that's called? Grace. Grace. Marvelous. Infinite. Matchless grace. Grace that exceeds my sin and my guilt. John Newton, sinner and slave trader, called it amazing grace. And he said, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Twas blind, but now I see. I don't care how far down in the dregs of sin you've gone. I don't care how far sin has dragged you. I don't care how far along sin has taken you. And I don't care how much it's cost you. It cost the precious Son of God everything to buy you back out of the slave market of sin and to set your seat, your feet upon a rock and seal your name in the book of life and to open the gates of heaven and close the gates of hell. All, all, entirely because of God's grace. That's why the Bible says, by grace you're saved through faith. And that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest any man should boast oh praise God for his grace we were in St. Kitts some years ago and I had a soccer team with me and I had Timothy my my third son and I tried to teach them this lesson I said Timothy what do you see down there tell these men what you see there are about 15 or 20 guys with us when you're on an island in the Caribbean, the, at night, the ocean around is dark, dark, vast. And the whole island lights up like a Christmas tree. I said, what do you see at the end of this street? He said, a little red light. I said, that's right. I said, tell the men what that represents. He said, it represents my sin. I said, that's right. And I said, tell them what the ocean, the dark, vast ocean represents. He said, it represents God's grace. I said, that's right. God's grace is always greater than all our sin. Aren't you glad for that? Hey, the devil wants you to think it's the other way around. That God's grace is that little red dot and all the sea is your sin. No, 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 no. Not so with the Bible. Oh, praise God for his grace. But hear me, if you miss what I'm about to say, you'll have missed one of the greatest lessons that Judah teaches us. Look back at our text, Genesis chapter number 38 and verse 26. After Tamar says, discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet and bracelets and staff? Look at what it says, verse 26. And Judah acknowledged them and said, she hath been more righteous than I because that I gave her not to Sheila, my son, and he knew her again no more. You know what I believe verse 26 is? It's Judah's salvation verse. You know the final lesson that Judah's life teaches us? 
that God's grace can only be accessed through honest, humble faith. God's grace can only be accessed through honest, humble faith. From this verse, throughout the rest of his life, Judah is a completely different man. Joseph is languishing in Egypt. You'll read your Bible and find in Genesis chapter 39 that he has become the head of Potiphar's house, who was captain of Pharaoh's guard. But Potiphar's wife was a wicked, wily woman, and she set her eyes upon him. She was trying to lure him into the bed of immorality, and Joseph was having nothing with nothing to do with it. In fact, she snatched his coat when he was alone in the house doing business, and he fled, left the coat, and got out. He'd rather lose his coat than his character. In fact, he'd rather lose his coat than his reputation because she totally ruined his reputation. She accused him of rape. She was the first of the hashtag Me Too movement. And she accused him of rape and dragged his name down into the dregs. As a result, he got thrown in the slammer until he was in his 30s. Two years in, he thought, Maybe I'll get out because he had two of Pharaoh's guard, two of Pharaoh's servants cast in with him. They had a dream. He interpreted the dream and it came to pass just like he said. And one of the dream, dreams was that the butler would be restored to his, his position. And just like he said, it came to pass. On his way out, Joseph said, remember me. And you know, it took two years before Pharaoh had a dream and the butler completely forgot him. Pharaoh had a dream. None of his wise men could interpret it. They called for Joseph to come up because they heard that he could interpret dreams. He interpreted the dream, said there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. He said, now if it were me, I'd save up during the seven years of plenty for the seven years of famine. And don't you know, Pharaoh in a moment restored Joseph to a place of prominence and gave him the second most powerful position in all of Egypt. The famine came, the plenty came, the famine came. It affected Judah and Jacob and the sons. They came down and you read the rest of the chapter and you know what you'll find? Judah, a changed man. Judah, who is willing to go to bat for his brothers. Judah, who is completely honest. And Judah, who in the end was willing to go into slavery so that his brothers could go free and the father he had once hurt deeply by his own sin would not be hurt again. You know what that teaches me? That God's grace can only be accessed through honest and humble faith. I wonder if you're here tonight and you're not saved. Never been born again. You know the way to be born again? Through honest and humble faith. Not doubting and questioning God's word and doubting and questioning God's grace, but honestly acknowledging your sin and humbly by faith receiving God's grace. I wonder if you're here in a Christian and you've gone down the road of sin too far. One step is too far, but you've gone down that road of sin. And you say, preacher, I don't know what the way back is. And the devil always wants to cloud the way back. You know the way back? It's through honest and humble faith. No other way. Thank you, Judah, for the lessons you teach me. You teach me first that God loves me and works with me in spite of me. You teach me second that sin is exceedingly sinful. You teach me third that God's grace is greater than all my sin. You teach me finally that God's grace can only be accessed through honest and humble faith. Would you bow with me? Thank you for your kind attention to the Bible tonight. I wonder with your heads bowed and your eyes closed if you'd say, Preacher, I'm saved, but tonight as you've been preaching, God has convicted me. 
I know there's something in my life, something in my life that's not right, and I need to get right. I need to stop pretending that it's no big deal. I need to confess it to the Lord and make it right. If that's you, would you slip up your hand? Is there anybody like that? God bless you. Praise God. Thank you. So preacher, Judah has taught me a lesson tonight. With God's help, I'm going to make it right. Anybody else along with these, just slip up your hand. God bless you. Anyone else? Preacher, pray for me. Tonight, I'm going to get right. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. God bless you. Question number two, how many of you would say, Brother Dwight, I, 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 I'm not perfect, but I know I'm saved. I remember the time when I accepted God's gift of eternal life, and I know that I'm on my way to heaven. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand right now as a testimony to that fact? Preacher, I know that I'm on my way to heaven. Thank you. May put your hands down. Is there someone here this evening that would say, Preacher, I don't know. I wish I knew. I want to know, but I don't know. Would you pray for me? I will. If that's you, would you slip up your hand right now? Is there anybody here like that? I'll not embarrass you. Thank you. Is there anyone else? I don't know that I'm going to heaven when I die. I wish I knew and I want to know, but I don't know. Would you pray for me? Anyone else along with this one? Just slip up your hand, put it right back down. All right, now heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you just raised your hand, would you just lift your eyes and look at me for just a moment? If you said, preacher, I don't know that I'm going to heaven, but I want to know. Did you mean that? Did you mean that? All right, now in just a moment, we're going to have an invitation. And I want to give you a personal invitation to come to Jesus. Just leave your seat as soon as the music begins. I'm going to pray for you as I promised. And then when I get done praying, we're going to stand. And the pianist is going to start playing through a few verses of invitation. As soon as she plays the first note, I want to encourage you to come. Now, I'm going to pray for you. But my prayers alone can't get you to heaven. You've got to make a personal choice to come to Jesus. And this is what Jesus said. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And if you'll come to him, he'll save you tonight. He'll, he'll wash your sins completely away and give you a home in heaven. Let's stand, shall we, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for your word. Oh, help us, I pray. Help us to sit at the feet of Judah and lean from his lessons. Lord, it wasn't always pretty, his life. But my, what powerful lessons he's taught us. I pray for this one that needs to be saved and get that matter settled. Help him to come and get it settled tonight. And then, Lord, many Christians raise their hands saying they need to get something right. Help them to come on the first note. Kneel at this altar. Do business with you. Oh, Lord, help us to be like Judah and acknowledge our sinfulness and our need of help. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. The pianist is softly playing. If you need to be saved, you come right now. You need to get right. You come right now. Just move towards the aisle. Someone will come and help you and pray with you if you need it. You come on. Don't wait. Come on. From the back. From the side, from the center of the aisle, you come on.